Romans chapter 7, verse 1. Here now the reading of God's inspired word. Romans 7, verse 1. Know ye not, brethren, for I speak to them that know the law, how that the law hath dominion over a man as long as he liveth? For the woman which hath an husband is bound by the law to her husband so long as he liveth. But if the husband be dead, she is loosed from the law of her husband. So then if, while her husband liveth, she be married to another, she shall be called an adulteress. But if her husband be dead, she is free from that law, so that she is no adulteress, though she be married to another man. Wherefore, my brethren, ye also are become dead to the law by the body of Christ, that ye should be married to another, even to him who is raised from the dead, that we should bring forth fruit unto God. Thus far the reading of God's holy word from Romans chapter 7. Let's pray. Our Father in heaven, we thank you that you have illustrated for us the nature and extent and power of the gospel the resurrection of Jesus Christ, all in this institution of marriage. We pray as we consider the law of marriage and the law of God concerning it, that you would give us delight, understanding, and application to our particular circumstances by your grace. In Jesus' name, amen. Please be seated. We're continuing in our series on the law of marriage Having looked at the created order and the patriarchs, now we come to the law of marriage in the law of Moses. I'll try to take representative passages from the law of Moses and we'll deal with their teachings and applications such as they may be to our own times and days as Gentile believers. What is it that the Lord requires of us from these laws? Open to Exodus chapter 20, please. Page 83 of your pew Bibles, Exodus chapter 20. Remember, these are the laws that God wrote with his own finger, that he spoke with his own mouth, and that he had put into the Ark of the Testament, signifying their permanence, their endurance, and signifying also his writing of these laws upon the hearts of his people in the New Testament. Exodus chapter 20, let's look at verse 14. The Lord says, Thou shalt not commit adultery. Notice here, thou shalt not. This is a prohibition for an individual. He does not say, ye shall not. We shall not. They shall not. He does not say that here. In fact, the entire frame of reference of the moral law or the Ten Commandments is thou. He says, second person singular, thou shalt not. I note then that morality is personal and individual even before considering other categories. Are there national sins? Yes. Are those sins individual sins first? Yes, because they start with thou, thou shalt not. And then if many of those who receive this command say, I'm not going to submit, then it becomes a national sin. 
Morality, then, is personal and individual before it is anything else. Furthermore, there is no social justice since each person is responsible for his own deeds. Social justice is the idea of the pantheist that society is the only individual. Little individuals like you and me are melted into the mass spirit of the nation. That's the Hegelian or the pantheist idea of Marxism, for example, Black Lives Matter, feminism, all these retards. They all think that man is nothing until he's joined in groups. Then he's something. This is called social justice. And this is false. There is no social justice in the Bible. There is only, listen, individual justice. Thou shalt not. And if you violate that, you die. Not your children, you do. That's what God says. Every man shall die for his own sins. If you have a civil punishment, it can't be based off of the group you belong to. It must be your deeds meted out to you in particular. Thou shalt not. Let us then take responsibility for our actions recalling our duty to God and our neighbor, and let us hold fast to this principle and not seek for remedies in social justice and blame shifting. Did you know that's what psychologists do? Let me show you how you're not responsible, but your parents are responsible. Your husband is responsible. Your wife is responsible. Your children, your state, your school, all your teachers you grew up with, the socioeconomic system, that is responsible. You're not. That's called social justice. Marxism, communism, lunacy, pantheism, they're all the same thing. God says, thou shalt not. And so we must say, I must not. We must take ownership and responsibility for what God commands us. And here, God says, thou shalt not commit adultery. This is the specific prohibition. Do not rupture the marital covenant. There is what we call single adultery. One party is married and the other is not. And there is double adultery where both parties are married and they commit adultery. Both of them are crimes against God punishable by the magistrate's sword with death. God says, thou shalt not commit this wicked sin. Now, there are also forms of other sins, not specifically called adultery in the Bible, but also forbidden by this moral law. We see such things as fornication being forbidden, and there are specific ways to deal with fornicators in the Bible, not by death, but by requiring them to take responsibility for their actions and be married. Then there are sodomites who, against the order of nature, jump into wild disaster and bring destruction on themselves. And there are other types of sexual sins. But here God names the capital one adultery, which ruptures the fabric of society in the covenant of marriage. Turn over to Exodus 21, starting at verse 7, just a page over. Exodus 21, we'll look at verses 7 through 11, starting there at verse 7. And if a man sell his daughter to be a maidservant, she shall not go out 
as the men servants do. If she please not her master, who hath betrothed her to himself, then shall he let her be redeemed. To sell her unto a strange nation he shall have no power, seeing he hath dealt deceitfully with her. If he have betrothed her unto his son, he shall deal with her after the manner of daughters. If he take him another wife, her food, her raiment, and her duty of marriage shall he not diminish. And if he do not these three unto her, then shall she go out free without money. So here notice a couple of things. Verse 7 tells us, if a man sell his daughter to be a maid servant. This is a marital bargain, as we'll see by the word betrothed or appointed to be married later in verse 8. But here notice, he sells her to raise his family fortunes. He's probably a poor man. He needs money. He's got a daughter. He sells her and takes her dowry to provide for his household. Now, this word maidservant, it expresses a subordinate condition, usually that of a slave. Hagar, the same word is used of her, she was a maidservant to Sarah. She was under her mistress who had authority and ownership over her. But also, in the Bible, you will find that women who are either perspective to be married or who are actually married refer to themselves in this same way with reference to their husbands. Ruth refers to herself with respect to Boaz in Ruth 3.9 as his maidservant. That's how she refers to herself. Abigail, in speaking to David in 1 Samuel 25.14, refers to herself as his handmaid or maidservant. Bathsheba, when she speaks to David in 1 Kings 1.17, refers to herself as his lawful wife, as his maidservant. I am in subjection to you. You are my master. You are my Lord. I am your maidservant. That's how she refers to herself in that context. So this, though referring to the same word, does not necessarily imply slavery. It seems to be some form of marriage. Though she is not endowed with a dowry, the father is, and therefore she's not quite on the parallel of a wife, but she's in the position of semi-servitude as a wife. Note, though, verse 7, though this is all the case, and at worst, she's a slave at best, she's sort of a second-class wife. Note, she shall not go out as the men servants do. Though this marriage may be contracted outside of equal social status. You see that? Poor family, poor girl. Dad gets the money, she doesn't. She marries a man who apparently has enough money to buy her, but isn't really sure he wants to marry her or not really sure he wants to marry her off to his son. So he's got some extra cash. He seems to be wealthy, in other words. The social status is not equal, yet, though that's the case, and the circumstances are less than ideal, yet she cannot be dealt with cruelly, can she? She can't be made into a whipping girl. She can't be treated like the rest of the male slaves. Her sex still dictates that you protect her, even though she's a slave, so to speak, or a maidservant, or some kind of marital relation. They were not permitted to be cruel to such a woman in such a condition. Verse 8, notice here, 
if she please not her master. In his eyes, she's no good. That's what it means, literally. That's what it means, she does not please her master, her Adon, as Sarah called Abraham, her Lord, master, her governor. Notice, she's no good in his eyes, but he's betrothed her to himself, it says. Now, this word means to appoint, to arrange, or to betroth. We have set a date aside in which I will take you to be my wife. That's the idea of betrothal. I promise you that I will promise you later. It's a promise to make a promise because marriage is a promise. You come together and make covenants with promises. So here he says, later, I'm going to take you as my wife. That's how he deals with her. But now he's not pleased with her. This is before they consummate. They're still betrothed, not yet married. Then what's he supposed to do if she's evil in his eyes? Then shall he let her be redeemed. Now remember, he paid money for her. He invested in her. But now he has to let her go. He shall allow her to be redeemed. She can back out. She can be bought out of the contract by another man. Notice God deals with Israel according to the hardness of their heart. Just as we saw in other passages in the Gospel of Matthew, when they ask questions about divorce and God, for the hardness of their heart, Jesus said, allowed you this dispensation, but from the beginning it was not so. This is not according to the order of nature that God instituted with Adam and Eve. He made the two one flesh. How can you rupture that? How can you take that apart? So here God again, I believe, condescends to the hardness of their heart, allows her to get out of the contract because the man has become, you might say, fickle. But notice, even in his fickleness, it says, he shall not have power to sell her to a strange nation, seeing he hath dealt deceitfully with her. By his wickedness, he lost his right. He might, you might even say he lost his money. He doesn't have the right to just send her off to the highest bidder. He must treat her in a specific way because of his deceit. Now, this word deceit is very interesting. Sometimes when we talk about deceit, we're saying something like, you say something you know isn't true. This isn't that usage of the term. In fact, this Hebrew word means to be treacherous. It can mean to deceive, but with the added note of treachery, doing some evil to another person, being faithless where they relied on your promise, huh, you're not going to fulfill it. You're treacherous, like Judas Iscariot. Hail, master, and he kisses him. That's treachery. You pretend and make a show that you love the person and you hate them. That's what the man does to this woman. And therefore, he loses his right to sell her off, so to speak, to the highest bidder. Verse 9. And if he have betrothed her unto his son, he shall deal with her after the manner of daughters, God says. He shall deal with her after the manner of daughters, as if she were his own daughter. That's what that means. Though in a manner she was like a slave come from a poor family, purchased from the dad, betrothed to his son. Yet notice, the tie of the betrothal, the promise to marry, is so strong in the Bible 
that she's to be treated as a daughter to this man just because he promised that his son would marry her at some point he's now obliged to treat her as his own daughter I note then this doctrine in scripture the marriage relationship is as strong as the natural tie you know did you see that as if she were his daughter that's how he's supposed to treat her why because he promised that she would marry his son is that how we think of it no we're faithless we're treacherous we honor the treachery of people all the time God does not honor it God considers betrothal a form of marriage and then he says that marriage forms a strong tie such as if that was your natural daughter the father-daughter relationship created to the daughter-in-law with corresponding duties that he owes to her that's pretty strong isn't it very strong I note also this doctrine that the biblical law teaches a harmony of interests versus the heathen idea of antagonism of interests now what does this mean your interest as God again and again appeals to us in the Bible is the ownership you have in something what do you get out of the deal you remember God said whatsoever a man soweth that shall he also reap that's appealing to your self-interest do I want to reap corruption no do I want to reap eternal life yes therefore I should sow the right kind of seed so it's in your best interest Paul says not to sneer at God and be deceived not to think that God can be mocked and to do what he commands you because otherwise you're going to reap corruption he's appealing to your self-interest now in the Bible the interest that I have is to be harmonized with the interests of others let not every man look only to his own things but also on the what the interests of others here notice he's taken her as some form of maidservant to be married to her son to his son and he has an obligation not just to look out for his own interests but her interests as well to treat her as a daughter not to be fast and loose with her rights biblical law teaches a harmony of interests what does every pagan religion and system amount to a disunity of interest black versus white Jew versus Gentile male versus female young versus old our nation versus your nation that's what heathenism teaches it's tribalism just look out for yourself everyone else be damned who cares about anybody else look out for number one so you women look out for yourselves don't listen to your husbands do what you want you men don't love your wives just look out for your own interests if she has these things where you're obliged to her, forget about her do your thing be the playboy that's the idea heathenism teaches a antagonism of interests everybody's fighting you see this when communists take over a country in a Christian nation everyone can prosper it's okay you can have people with lots of money who are rich and you can have people who are poor it's all right you know why because there's a harmony of interest between the rich and the poor what does God say in his law 
You have your brother who's poor with you? You provide him sufficient for his need. That's what he says. He says, lend him enough so that he can eat. But you have, on the other hand, the poor and the rich need to fight each other. The rich steal from you. Go kill them and take their land. That's what the communists say. So once communism comes in, the conflict of interest begins. Ah, let's set the white against the black. Let's set the farmer against the the city people. Let's set the young against the old. Let's set the male against the female. And what does God say? Rubbish, hogwash. All of you submit to me and your interests will align with one another's. You will have harmony. You will treat this slave girl as your daughter, he says. Treat her as you would your own daughter. There is a harmony of interests in the Bible. Let us then abandon the worldly conflict of interest practice and philosophy. Let us embrace the biblical harmony of interests. The church even fails at this point. They set husbands and wives against each other. They will not recognize, usually it's the husband in our day because of feminism, they won't recognize his interests. Ah, shut up. You don't have any interest in this marriage. Do what we say, which is do what she says. That's what they do. They only recognize the woman's interest. Maybe it's legitimate. Maybe the husband's sinning. Help the guy out, but don't take away his interests because God doesn't. Verse 10, notice, if he take him another wife, oh, here we go. You said that you were going to marry your son off to this girl and you found someone else instead of her. Still betrothed, right? Not married yet, but you've promised that your son will take this girl and you bring in another to this picture. You dealt deceitfully. You dealt treacherously. You betrothed her to your son and toy with her. And again, God recognizing the hardness of their heart, their wickedness and treachery, he says, her food, her raiment, and her duty of marriage shall not be diminished. He shall not diminish those things. You created an obligation by promising your son to this girl. You now have a financial obligation, not just what you laid out to buy her, but what you now owe her to sustain her by taking her this way and dealing with her in a treacherous way. And this is only a betrothal. This is only a promise to give her to your son. I note then this doctrine that betrothal or engagement to marry is considered as strong as marriage in Scripture. We'll see this also in the New Testament. Did you know that Mary was the wife of Joseph before they came together? Because why? They were betrothed. They had promised to each other to be married, and that creates a husband-wife relationship. So here as well. You promised to make this marital covenant between the slave girl and your son. And therefore, you have obligations before God the same as a husband owes to his wife to provide for her. And this brings us to another doctrine. 
Not only does God hold betrothal or the promise to make a marital covenant as sacred before him, but also husbands owe provision to their wives under normal circumstances. Husbands owe provision to their wives under normal circumstances and conditions, especially if the man has dealt deceitfully with her. We'll see this later in Deuteronomy. If a man seduces a woman, he can't even divorce her. He loses the right of divorce. Even in the case where she might do something that warrants it, he can't get rid of her. He's stuck because he couldn't control his urges. He therefore gets stuck with her. He can't just leave her hanging, in other words. He can't just be a playboy and do whatever he wants. Here, note, a husband owes provision to the wife. And here, the man who betrothed this girl to his son, he owes provision to her as well for the deceitfulness that he exercised toward her. So I exhort young people, be careful when choosing to pledge your troth to promise to be married. You be very cautious to whom you make such a promise. Men may let you off the hook. God will not. You may make one false step or word and you're on the hook for life. One night of passion, one rash oath, whether men or women, boys or girls, we must be careful what we promise to do because God will hold you to it. And then I say to men, do all in your power to provide for your wives. This is your duty to her says that he has to give her what? Food, clothing, duty of marriage. I don't know exactly what that is, but it at least includes a place for her to live. Normally after consummation, it means you live together, the duty of marriage. But here at least, you've got to provide food, clothing, and shelter for this woman for the rest of her life because of one little thing that you said. So men have a duty to provide. It's not a favor you do to your wife. It's an obligation you create by taking her as a wife. Work hard, deny yourself, save up, lay down your life for her. That's what Jacob did we saw last week. He worked seven years for Rachel. He was out in the cold, he says, day and night looking after the sheep. If anything was lost, I took the loss. I gave you my sheep instead. He denied himself. He worked hard. The state, when it steps into such arrangements and says, well, I'm going to make you provide for this treacherous woman, is doing the exact opposite of what God says. They're siding with treacherous women and saying, oh, you abandoned your husband? You went off and committed adultery? Oh, you, man, come provide for this woman. Is that the spirit of this law? It's just the opposite. It's the man who is treacherous and he gets punished for his treachery, not for hers. But notice, in this case, verse 11 tells us that if he doesn't do these three under her, then she shall go out free without money. So he's betrothed this woman to his son. He refuses to do the duty of provision for her. He wants to get out of this contract that he's made. He deals treacherously with this woman. He takes another wife For his son, now what? Is he let off the hook? No. 
The whole investment that he made in this original transaction is lost down the tubes. She goes out without money. Nobody has to pay a red cent to him to get this girl out. That's what it's saying. Civil laws, I note then, must penalize treachery in marital promises. Now, if we have songs on our radio that encourage treachery, what sort of society do we live in? We live in a lawless society, don't we? A society that despises God and the duties of those who make promises. Here God says, penalize the guy. He's a bum. He made promise that he would not fulfill. Therefore, take away his investment. You think that's not going to mean something to a man? He's laid out this money to get this girl, and it all goes down the drain? You see what God is doing? Take responsibility. When you make a promise, keep your promise. If you don't keep your promise, it's going to cost you, God says. Civil laws must penalize treachery in marital promises or the state becomes an accessory to the crime. That's how we have national sins. Once the magistrate refuses to punish the sin, the magistrate approves of the sin. Civil laws must penalize this treachery. And to some extent, you could say, if a man gave an engagement ring, he loses that, perhaps that's a penalty. That's appropriate, that's suitable. But magistrates have a duty to ensure that women are dealt with by such measures so that men don't become bold in these things. That's what we have in our day. Young men are bold to toy with women because there's no repercussions in their civil life. And that's all that means anything to these beasts. If it touched their pocketbook or their body, they might wake up a little bit. God says, I'm going to toss you in hell forever because you're a fornicator and you don't honor the marriage bed. And they say, ah, no big deal. So what? I'm going to hell anyways. Who cares? Oh, hell's not real. That's just a fairy tale. No, it's a real place. They're actually going to go there. They're actually going to burn in flames forever. But they think, well, no big deal. So you have to wake them up. You have to penalize them. You have to make it count. And this is what the Lord instituted here. Look down at verse 22. Again in Exodus 21. Verse 22. If men strive and hurt a woman with child so that her fruit depart from her, and yet no mischief follow, he shall be surely punished according as the woman's husband will lay upon him, and he shall pay as the judges determine. And if any mischief follow, then thou shalt give life for life, eye for eye, tooth for tooth, hand for hand, foot for foot, burning for burning, wound for wound, stripe for stripe. Verse 22, notice the fruit, that is what we talked about in Romans 7, 4, that's children. The fruit depart from her, her child is born untimely, yet no mischief follow, he shall be surely punished. What? I thought nothing bad happened to the baby. Yes, but your out-of-control anger and fighting and striving, you are responsible for the results of it. Whatever follows upon your rash anger, you are also responsible for. If you walk thoughtlessly down the hall 
and your brother gets knocked over by you and hurts himself and you say, I didn't mean to, that's partially correct. You didn't think beforehand, ah, I'm going to go knock my brother over, bonk. But what you meant was, I'm consumed with myself. I don't care about you. I'm going to walk down the hall however I please. And whatever happens to you, too bad. Get out of my way. You see? I didn't mean to means I'm too selfish to think of you. That's how you should say it. Well, I was too selfish to think about you, so I knocked you over. Well, are you responsible for knocking over your brother because you didn't control yourself while you're walking? Yes, because you are responsible in the midst of your fight not to hurt that woman. Men are responsible for their tempers, for their actions, and for the results that follow upon their rash actions. Those who drive drunk and kill people are murderers. Not because they meant to, but because they meant to. They did not say, I'm going to go murder someone with my car. What they did is they drove their car in a drunken stupor, and therefore you're responsible for what follows upon your drunken stupor. The fruit departs. No mischief to the baby. He still gets punished because the baby should have been in there full term. You took it out early. You must pay. But notice also, not only must he be punished, it is according as the woman's husband will lay upon him. The family is extremely important in the Bible. And the determination of the punishment for the untimely birth of the child is put into the hands of a private citizen, the husband of this woman, the wife's proper authority. Now, the judges then, they have to do what this guy says. They have to submit themselves to the father, to the husband. They must reinforce, you might say, the family authority. I note then this doctrine that civil power exists to reinforce the other sphere's authority, not to undermine their authority. Civil power exists to reinforce the other sphere's authority rather than to undermine those spheres. The family has an authority structure. The church has an authority structure. Private contracts have an authority structure, masters and servants. Who's supposed to reinforce the authority there? Well, the civil government. That's why they exist. They're supposed to step in when someone breaches the other sphere's authority and say, uh-uh, no, you don't. You don't have the right to their goods. You don't have the right to disrespect their authority. You don't have the right to defame their good name. You don't have any of that right. You can't sleep with that man's wife. They're supposed to step in and reinforce the spheres of authority. What does communism teach? There are no other spheres of authority. Just us. We're it. You do what we say. We're your family. We're your mama. We're your daddy. We're your security net. We are your lawgiver. We are your judge. We are your God. That's what they say. God says, no. Civil power, you exist for my glory. 
to reinforce my rights in the first table and men's rights in the second table. And that's what they're called to do. You punish this man who is rash and fought and caused the baby to be born prematurely. You punish him just as the man says who's the head of that household. You reinforce his authority. You stand behind the family authority. That's the whole purpose of civil government is to reinforce the rights of others, gods and men's. Let us then inform our magistrates and inform the citizens of this land of these vital truths. Even those who profess to be conservative believers, they often don't understand this. Oh, well, you didn't do what the state said. So what? Are they helping to protect somebody's rights, gods or men's? Because if they're not, they have no right to tell me what to do. They have zero right. Their entire duty is to reinforce the other spheres. Let me illustrate. Child Protective Services. Oh, you spanked your kid? We'll take him away from you. Is that reinforcing the rights of parents to punish their children as God commands them to do? And you're going to say, no, you can't use the rod. That's not the civil government. That is Satan using the tool of tyranny in order to corrupt the rights and duties of parents. No. God requires a reinforcement here. We must inform ourselves and our fellow citizens of these truths. We must hold this as solid and immovable as a foundation upon which civil magistrates exist. They are to reinforce the family rights, personal rights, ecclesiastical rights, and ultimately divine rights by punishing those that do evil. Notice, though, what if the baby dies? What if the baby is injured? What if he loses his eye or his foot is malformed? What do we do then? Well, God is very clear. Eye for an eye, tooth for a tooth, hand for hand, foot for foot, life for life. The fruit of the marriage, the baby dies because of your rash fight. Even if this baby is the, the fruit of fornication, it doesn't make a distinction. It doesn't make a distinction. This is her man right here with her. This is the baby that he fathered. He imposes a punishment upon you. You have to pay as he says. But if that baby dies, you die. I didn't mean to. I was just fighting. No, you meant to. You didn't mean to, but you meant to because you didn't control your temper. You weren't master of your own body. You lost control and the sword of civil justice must punish you for this negligence with death, life for life. What can we say then for those who choose to murder their infants? If God says life for life and you did it on accident, what does he say when you choose to snuff out the life? I'll tell you what he says. You should die at the hand of the civil magistrate. Mother, father, politician, magistrate, social media influencer, songwriter, it doesn't matter. You should die. Because you chose to snuff out an innocent life. John Calvin, he says, For the fetus, 
though enclosed in the womb of its mother, is already a human being. If it seem more horrible to kill a man in his own house than in a field, because a man's house is his place of most secure refuge, it ought surely to be deemed more atrocious to destroy a fetus in the womb before it has come to light. What does God say? Where is that safe place where God knits us together? He calls it the heart of the earth. No one can touch you and reach you there. You're safe from all distraction. You know what a baby has? Constant supply of food from mom. A warm and beautiful environment. The safest place on earth. And you turn it into a chamber of death. That's what he's saying. In criminal laws, if you attack a man in the field and you fight, people look at that and say, well, you know, he kind of had it coming. They were fighting. You invade in a person's home and you get killed. People are like, well, you deserve that. You shouldn't have invaded his home. You invade the womb where a baby is being nourished and knit together by divine power? What sort of beast are you? Let us abhor then with all of our being, the satanic and corrupt practice of aborting children. Whether done chemically or surgically, let us vote, let us pray, let us spend our time and treasures to eradicate this crime and stain upon our people. Let us work for the death penalty as many people say, pro-life people, they call themselves, well, the woman's a victim who kills her baby. No, she's not. She exists at that moment, at that time, to protect that child. God built it into her body to protect that child, and she's going to slaughter it? And you're going to tell me she's a victim? No, she's a murderer. Grandparents who say, no, you've got to get rid of this baby. You know, this happens in pastors' families. The girl fornicates. It's the pastor's daughter. What do we need to do? Well, for the ministry's sake, I can't be seen to have my daughter off sleeping around. Well, that's what she did, you hypocrite. Deal with it. Deal with the life. Help raise the child. Repent of the sins you committed against your daughter if you did. No, no, no. We just got to get, for the sake of the ministry, for my good name as pastor, I got to kill this baby. That's sickening. Sickening, devilish, godless wickedness. No. Anyone who advocates by their words, by their books, by their political stance for the murdering of innocent people deserves to hang publicly. Deserves to be under a pile of stones before the firing squad. Tear them to bits. Cut off their arm one at a time. See how they like it while they scream in pain. See how you like to be treated like those babies, wicked reprobates? No, we must advocate for the death and the termination of all who say we may murder our infants. I don't care who they are or what sort of good things they've done otherwise, they deserve to die. And God says, you accidentally kill a baby in the womb, you die. What about those who choose to murder infants in the womb. Well, the Lord has given us much concerning the law of marriage 
In the law of Moses, God willing, next week we'll look at the book of Leviticus. Let's pray. Father in heaven,